Hello, Woodlane community. This is Pastor Brian, and you are listening to the Woodlane Worship Podcast, episode 077. If you are listening to this, you are an honorary member of our community where we seek to bring the presence of Christ to those around us. On this week's episode, it doesn't take much to make a person feel insignificant, like they can't make a difference. Sometimes others impose this idea on us. Sometimes it's our own self-talk that limits what we can do. But God uses the Christmas story to flip that idea on end. As we look at the carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem, aptly named, by the way, we can start to see how God uses minor things for major outcomes, and that is not just limited to the Christmas story. Check it out. Greg Hefley, middle schooler, bully victim, kid who just can't catch a break. But he does know how to play video games very well, for whatever good that might do him. And he does know how to document his life, as he does in a series called The Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Maybe, admit it or not, there's a place in Greg's life that you can relate to. Even if it's just the title of his series. Have you ever been passed over? you ever been chosen last? you ever been like, I wish that I could be more like, insert person, star, phenomenon? A few weeks ago we talked about those times that other people say that to us. Why can't you be more like this person, but you know what? Sometimes we end up saying that to ourselves. And that's when things can get dangerous. When we start to have this line of questioning that goes on in our own minds. Am I good enough? Am I strong enough? Am I tough enough? Am I capable enough? Am I worthy enough? These are those little seeds that can grow into crippling ideas, that cripple our effectiveness cripple how effective we are as citizens in our community, how effective we are as family members, how effective we are at being a part of this major story that God calls us into. Now, I could rah-rah you guys with, you know, think positive and all this kind of stuff to, to get you over that, but two things. First off, you guys are too smart for that. If I try and rah-rah, you guys, you will see right through it because I cannot fake that stuff to save my life. But number two, I don't have to because God did something so much better than think positive. And we see it a couple hundred years even before the Christmas story really starts to unfold. In Micah's prophecy, the end of his book, chapter 5, But you, O Bethlehem, you are one of the little clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to rule in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she is in labor and is brought forth. Then the rest of his kindred shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall live secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be one of peace. If the Assyrians come into our land and tread upon our soil, we will raise them up, raise against them seven shepherds and eight installed as rulers. Now I'm going to hang out on verse 2 of this prophecy. Probably so much more that I could dive into, but that's really something we can really hang on to because as we look at the Christmas story from the angle of the carols that we sing, Philip Brooks 
nailed this when he wrote the title, O Little Town of Bethlehem. He got that spot on. Because God uses a minor town for a major story. Now, Bethlehem is this town that is stuck between two major cities. You've got Jerusalem, that top star, Bethlehem in the middle, and Hebron down at the bottom. Jerusalem was the place where the temple was, where the kings lived. Hebron was this city that all the patriarchs of our faith came from, Abraham and such. And Bethlehem is this little, don't blink or you'll miss it, podunk town in the middle. Now, just for future reference, little foreshadowing here, Jerusalem is about two feet north of the top of the screen, about 60 miles north of Bethlehem. Hang on to that. There are four or five different lists of towns within the biblical world in the Old Testament, um, from the towns that written in Nehemiah, I believe, and the towns that um, Joshua and his army took over. And you would think just about every town would be covered. Not once does Bethlehem come up. Doesn't even get an honorable mention. On top of that, it's even associated with minor characters as well within the biblical story. You have the foreigner, can't even have a local, Ruth. Her story takes place in Bethlehem. You have Jacob's youngest son, Benjamin, who's born here. And by youngest, that's pretty important because in the biblical world, youngest is often synonymous with runt. You have Jesse's youngest son who works here. His, he was the youngest, even though his story is kind of big. Guy named Dave. It did have one little thing going for it. They had great bread. If you read the story of Ruth, you hear about how um, gleaning and bread harvest, or grain harvest at least, is such a big part of that story. That's Something that this city, the house of bread, translation of the name, Bethlehem, so we're talking about name translations. House of bread, that's what Bethlehem means, even though the story, the setup, kind of makes Bethlehem seem more like the house of the Pillsbury Doughboy. But it is ironic that the bread of life would be born in this house of bread. As I said, there are some minor characters coming out of this story. That one Dave even though this is also known as the city of David. And we, if you're familiar with this story, I know many of you are, there is a lot of, kind of epic stuff to it. You know, David and Goliath and, and him being king and him writing all these psalms and calming Saul and everything that goes on with that. But when he was anointed, his own father basically thought, this guy is the youngest. When Samuel came, he said, you don't, he brought all his sons before Samuel because he said, you know, hey, let's get together. We're going to worship. We're going to sacrifice. We're going to sacrifice as a way of worship. And I'm going to anoint one of your sons. Bring them all before me. So he brings them all before Samuel. Jesse does. And with God giving him in the in-ear monitor, nope, not that one, not that one, not that one, not that one. Samuel kind of gets to the end of the line. And, and even with his, the greatest looking one, one of those who is strongest, Eliab, he says, God's kind of whispering in Samuel's ear, he says, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. The man, the son, you would probably think Samuel is going to anoint. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. They look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 
And eventually Samuel gets to the point where he, he says to Jesse, hey, are these all your sons? And he says, no, I've got, a, my youngest is out in the fields, but he's the youngest. Samuel says, get him in here. And though he is the youngest, God says, that's the one. And he anoints him. See, God has this way, not just of using minor towns for a major story, but he uses minor characters for a major story. Again, not only with Ruth and Benjamin and David, but let's take this into the Christmas story or the Advent story. Mary, single teen woman, three strikes against Mary. No offense to the ladies in, the, in my presence. Back then, yes, even more so than today, all the stars in the universe had to align in order for a woman to be significant. Just the way that culture was. And yet, God is going to use this very minor woman. Well, maybe she's got an awesome fiance. Let's see. Uh, Joe, he's a woodworker. He's a carpenter. No offense to woodworkers. They can be awfully strong themselves, but he's certainly not royalty. And you imagine who God has been talking about for these hundreds of years, who this child is going to be. You figure, okay, there's got to be something to these parents. Maybe they've got a millionaire uncle. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's their inroad. Nope. As Luke 2 says, they, Mary and Joseph, brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as was the custom, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. They would dedicate them at the temple. And they offered a sacrifice according to what was stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. See, the gift they were really supposed to bring was a sheep. Two doves is the poor person's offering. If you can't afford a sheep, we'll let you offer two doves. So they don't have a millionaire uncle. Really, God? You created Jupiter with a word, and these are the people you're going to use? Single teenage woman, carpenter son, no-name town? This is the best you got, God? It doesn't even stop there. You're going to leave heaven to come to earth as a baby to volunteer yourself to be nothing. As Paul says, Philippians 2, he says, but Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. You didn't even have the strings to pull to get born, to get housing in the inn when you were born. You know, if you're going to write a bestseller, even a fantasy book, there's a place where you have to have something that is believable about your story. Mary and her demographic, Joe and his demographic, Bethlehem and all that it has going against them, Jesus and everything he's going to do, God, you got to come up with better than this. And yet this is the setting God is choosing God is choosing to write the greatest story ever. And here's the fact. God chooses you to be a part of that story. In spite of anything that in your life that may make you feel like a minor character, that may make you relate to Ruth almost being a nobody, David being the youngest, Mary being somebody 
who really had no, reason, no business being a part of a story this big. Joe, not being a millionaire, not having... God didn't even get a middle manager as parents to care for him. Maybe even because of the things in your life are, that are a part of your personality that you think are minor, that you look in the mirror on Monday morning and you think, I wish this were different. Maybe it's even because of those things that God writes you into this story. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, the things that are not, to reduce to nothing the things that are. Well, if God works like that, he's setting the stage up perfectly because he's got the weakest, the smallest, the not enough. That all that Jerusalem has going for it, all that the high priests have going for it, all that the millionaires of the biblical world have going for it, yeah, he's just about going to bury them with the knots, the weakest. Here's the fact. God uses minor subjects for major stories. God uses minor subjects for major stories. And this is not just limited to the Christmas story. As I said, just in laying out those that came from Bethlehem, those stories, God uses minor subjects for major stories. God used the youngest of Jesse's clan for the epic story against Goliath. God used the other Joe, Joseph, in Genesis. The youngest, the one who got thrown in a well, who got eventually kicked into prison, used him for an epic story. God used the guy with the speech impediment to free, to create the epic story of freeing people from the rule of Pharaoh with four words, let my people go. He used a dude with a speech impediment. You may look in the mirror on Sunday morning, Monday morning, whenever, and you may see what Jesse saw in David. Young, inexperienced, Weak, not. But remember what God says to Samuel when he is looking at the strong, the mighty, the have in Eliab. A man who very well may have been a good guy, but God says to him, to Samuel in his ear, he says, do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things mortals look at. Does not look at what we see in the mirror. God looks deeper. What's in the heart? I love Matthew's, Matthew West's lyrics. In the song that I started to allude to a little bit earlier on, when he says, When you see broken beyond repair, I see healing beyond belief. When you see too far gone, I see one step away from home. When you see nothing but damaged goods, I see something good in the making. I'm not finished yet. I'm not finished yet. When you see wounded, I see mended. This goes beyond just God's perspective and God's point of view of what he sees in us. But again, God may actually use those things. Use the, when you look in the mirror and you see broken, God says, that's exactly what I need you to see. 
that's exactly what I'm going to use. That's the minor subject I'm going to use to write a major story in your life. A few weeks ago, the high schoolers were here for their tour, the World Religions Tour, the freshman class. And I finish off my thing with them to kind of go maybe a bit outside the realm of Christian history and all that, but I tell them, whatever you think of the things that I had said, whatever you think of the Bible and God and Christianity, I tell them, I believe as a Christian that God created people. You, me, them. And not only created, but designed people. And sometimes even designed us with those quirks, with those idiosyncrasies, with those things we wish were different, with those When we look back on our life, we wish, man, I wish things had gone a different way. But I tell them, especially in a time that maybe you guys can remember, that when you're in high school and you're kind of trying to figure this world out and figure yourself out, and you look at, you know, the stars on TV or the guys who have, or girls, who have 50 billion views on YouTube or 10,000 likes on their Instagram posts, you think, why can't I be like them? Why can't I have what they have? I've stood on that very stage and asked those same kinds of questions. Why can't I have this person's skill or this person's charisma or or talent or whatever? I bet I was up there five minutes ago, ten minutes ago, listening to Elijah and go, man, I wish I could do that. But I tell those kids, I say, be the best you that you can be. Quirks and all, idiosyncrasies and all, even those things you don't like at all? Because those could be the very on-ramp that God uses to change the world through you. Even if you don't know it till 30 years down the road. I wish, like Greg Heffenly, or I wish I didn't have the history of being the bully target like him. But that's what got me into youth ministry. There are certain tragedies that I know of and have experienced that I wish were different But those are the things that made Rachel and I connect the very first time we met. And since we are all works in progress, what I said to those high school freshmen a couple weeks ago counts for each of us today. God may very well use those idiosyncrasies, those quirks, those things you wish were different. Still not convinced that God uses minor subjects for major stories? Well, first off, if you're not convinced and you think you're full of hogwash, Brian, okay, that's fine. But that means you have to dismiss the stories of Moses and Joseph and Gideon and David and Joseph and Mary and Jesus and Paul and Timothy and Peter, just off the top of my head, because those were all characters with, that had something about them that they were minor, and God used them for some pretty major stories. But just last night, we were with a bunch of friends, and some of us were talking about the really bizarre, and it's the best word I can come up with, ways that God works sometimes. That God can take the strangest things and use them in miraculous ways. Yes, when we get rid of the kids, we party hard. These are the things we talk about. But I want you to follow this little bit of a, of a thread through the Christmas story out of Luke 2. This is where some of that foreshadowing that I told you about comes into play. 
we read in Micah's words that this Savior is going to come from Bethlehem, from David's descendants, from the city of David, Bethlehem. But over time, since David had been the one to have the city named after him, David's descendants had dispersed. So not many of them were living in Bethlehem at the time the Christmas story is starting to happen. Mary and Joseph are living in Nazareth, 60 miles north of Bethlehem, with no man's land in the middle, Samaria. That's a whole other sermon series. Things happen, and Mary is getting ready to have the baby. Now, my guess is, as a getting ready to be a first-time dad, Joseph is like, we're going to set up shop at home. We're going to get ready for the baby. Every, you know, much as we can prepare, we're going to do this in Nazareth. What does Joe not need? Joe does not need a 60-mile road trip on a mule with a third trimester pregnant fiancé. Andrew, I'm guessing you would not want that with Shana a couple of months ago, even in today's world of being able to travel 60 miles. Because Andrew's smart. And at some point, Joe's a smart guy too. So I'm guessing he tried to make Nazareth as best he could for the coming of his child. But Jesus is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. So God's got a bit of a quandary. How am I going to get this couple from 60 miles away who have nothing but a mule, if that, because they're poor, she's pregnant, how am I going to get them down to Bethlehem in time? So God uses tax law to get them down to Bethlehem. Caesar Augustus, this oppressive Roman, whom everyone in Bethlehem probably wanted eliminated because they heard Savior, they want the Romans out. Caesar Augustus puts out a tax. And in order to make sure that the tax is paid, people get back to their hometown so they can register and you know, make sure everyone's paying what they're supposed to and all that. So however it worked out, Augustus was persuasive enough that Joseph and Mary are like, we need to get down to Bethlehem. Pregnant, not, mule, not, whatever. We got to get down to Bethlehem. And all of David's descendants are like converging on this town to the point where as Mary and Joseph get into town, they're like, you know, we're not going to be able to make this return trip. We're not going to get back in time before the baby comes. So all this massive influx into this little town of Bethlehem, there's no room. So Joseph has to improvise a bed and the savior of the world is born. God used an oppressive ruler in Rome and tax law to make his story work out. What can't God use? So how does this impact our lives today? What difference does this make? Well, if you look in the mirror tomorrow morning and all you see is I'm perfect, I'm like the Adonis, I'm God's gift to this world, then go ahead and work from your strengths. For the rest of us, here's your next steps for this week. I want you to think of one thing that you wish was different. Whether it's something you see physically in the mirror, some personality thing that you wish was different, maybe even some part from your story, from your history that you wish was different. 
I know this is not fun, because sometimes it, off, it requires digging deep and going into dark places, but if it's a part of your story, own it. Don't deny it. Say, this is who I am. This is what my story has. That's how we take those dark things and we turn them into assets instead of liabilities, when we own them. And now get creative. Whatever it is you come up with in your head, ask yourself, how can this be used for God's glory? How can God use this for his glory and by extension, for my joy? Anything you can come up with, I guarantee God has used it. God has taken the most minor subjects and used them in major stories. And you know what? He will do it again with you. Thanks again for listening to the Woodland Worship Podcast. I hope we've given you something to make you think. If you'd like some more information about our community, check us out at woodlanechurch.org or visit our Facebook page at Woodlane Newark. If you happen to be in the Finger Lakes area, come check us out live on a Sunday morning at 9.45 a.m. See you next week in the Woodlane Worship Podcast.